The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Joining me for The Bigger Picture is Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Uh, Tim, where do you want to begin our conversation today? Well, I think uh, the first place we should start is actually uh, to re-examine Brexit, because uh, if we look at the actions of the British government um, uh, in the round, it's becoming, I think, ever clearer uh, the way that Brexit is starting to rebalance economic power. But I it's, it's five years, isn't it, since the vote? Do I see that it, somewhere this exactly. week? Yes. It is, although, don't forget, you know, the transition period um, is, is much more recent and, and sort of ongoing. But, but I think the first thing to remember is that the one person who was proved right in all of this was uh, the, the former French president, and, and sort of wartime leader Charles de Gaulle, because as I've argued with you before in the late 50s and throughout much of the 60s, it was de Gaulle who did not want Britain to join what was then the European Economic Community, because he consistently argued that Britain would mess it up, that if the United Kingdom joined the EEC, um, that we actually just had an underlying and divergent reality. He argued that we would never really be a European player, never never be a European power, because we're an Atlantic power in mm. that work. Um, that we're not consonant, for example, with France, because France uh, has been at that point heavily agriculture and sort of agriculture and mindset and tradition, whereas Britain has been heavily industrialized. And, and also that Britain is simply much more international in outlook. And, and he argued that if Britain was allowed into uh, the EEC as it was then, um, that um, eventually it wouldn't sit with us, that we would leave, uh, etc. So for me, in a sense, the real hero of all of this, because he's a hero in the sense that he knew us, I think, better than we knew ourselves, um, uh, that, that, that he has to be congratulated. Um, and... It, it, and, and true enough, when you look at the gradual rebalancing that Britain seems to be attempting, and you roll that forward, I have to say it again underlines what de Gaulle was saying, particularly in his writings in the early 1960s, uh, and really, quite frankly, right up to 1967. So um, yes. the EEC has become the EU, Simon. As we know, and with the fall of communism, um, it expanded very much with British encouragement right into the East. But the, the European Union has become a uh, highly regulated, um, uh, tariff protected uh, free trade area, uh, but um, it's actually becoming ever less successful in terms of its global position. So at the moment, it probably accounts for something around uh, 15% of, uh, of global trade. Whereas, of course, when we joined the EEC in the early 70s, it, it represented 38%. And there are projections now, the decades ahead, where as we see growth in the Far East and in China and other places, where um, uh, it is possible that the, e, the EU's share of, of global trade could go sort of down to 10% or even less. 
what Britain is doing is it's trying to re-engage globally and uh, it's having really interesting conversations with India. But crucially, this deal that has been done recently with Australia, I think, is very, very important indeed. And it's important because it's clear, isn't it, that we're, we're going to try and use uh, the deal with Australia as sort of a backdoor for us into the coming comprehensive partnership on trans-Pacific uh, uh, trade. And, and, and that, as it's called CPTPP, uh, really is primed for growth. And by 2050, as a block, as a block, that whole trading area, and you've got to think of North America, Peru, uh, Japan, Mexico, all those powerful rising nations around um, the Pacific and so much in Southeast Asia, they will probably account for around a quarter of global trade. So when people say, oh, you know, Brexit is failing or it's a huge success and they're trying to look at the last five years or the next year or two, I would suggest in terms of statecraft, they're slightly missing the point, is what happens over the decades ahead. And Britain has some real opportunities, um, but I have to say, if the, de if the numbers continue to decline for the European Union, then it has some really big problems. Yes. Particularly as there are rather more countries in the European Union than there were in the old EEC. I mean, it's a smaller proportion and declining proportion of world trade, despite a greater number of countries. Exactly. And, and you know, and, 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 and let's not forget, I mean, remember that throughout most of the 1990s, no country encouraged um, the expansion of the EU as it, as it had become, uh, even, you know, despite Maastricht Treaty and Lisbon and all those reforms, no country encouraged that expansion into Central Europe and Eastern Europe more than both the John Major government, but also the Tony Blair government. And, and indeed, also David Cameron was always very supportive as well. So, so Britain has sort of uh, deepened and widened the EU uh, the EU, however, in terms of global trade, has become uh, declining, and 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 we seem to be muscling in on that on the Far East and the Pacific, and you know often military power, naval sea power comes with trade. I don't think it's any accident that the Royal Navy is now permanently based east of Suez. It's in the Gulf. It has now um, a base in Bahrain and the Royal Navy seems to be back in Singapore. And of course, there's a deployment at the moment of what is called a carrier group led by HMS uh, 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 Queen Elizabeth going out precisely to the South China Sea and into that region in the days and weeks ahead. So the signs are there. Um, and uh, Getting altitude above all this, Simon, the great victor, the person who knew us, I repeat again, better than we knew ourselves was Charles de Gaulle. If he were alive today, he would say, See, I told you not to let them into the EU um, forever, perfidious Albion. Mm. I, I was slightly surprised reading, you always send me a reading this beforehand, um, talking about Macmillan, uh, because although we think of Heath as the one who brought Britain into the uh, European Union, I'm mean, a committed Euro uh, file clearly. But in talking about um, de Gaulle's earlier conversations with Macmillan and when de Gaulle was being very tough, um, even before he said no for the first time, uh, that 
according to this piece, which was admittedly from France 24, then translated, and I'm glad to say, into English, um, apparently it said the general's tough stance provoked Macmillan to burst into tears. You don't tend to think of statesmen bursting into tears um, during negotiations, do you? Well, I think the first thing was, of course, at the end of the war, Churchill uh, laid down the gauntlet for there to be some kind of united Europe uh, because of the horrors of the wars. I mean, to understand, you know, to go right back through the European Union, through the EEC and back to the, you know, the coal and steel um, uh, group that, that really the modern European Union came from originally, in a sense, to understand the DNA of, of this policy and of, and of what Europe became, you have to remember that really... Um, what became the EEC was really designed, the, the blueprints really were designed by the French. Um, it was always designed uh, for a long time that the Germans would would, would pay for the thing. Mm. Um, and, and all of this was basically signed off by the United States and the State Department um, in the late 1940s. So that was the blueprint. Churchill, I think, was very supportive of this because... I think as someone who was watching what Stalin was up to in 1946, 47, 48, um, as we were developing the, you know, the, 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 the Five Eyes Society, uh, the Five Eyes community, I think that Churchill um, was very alive to you know, Stalin's sort of aggressive behavior. Churchill always remained quite close to Attlee Never forget, Attlee had been his deputy in the Second World War. And the one thing that Churchill had done as a former military man was teach Attlee about how to handle intelligence and how to work with Britain's intelligence community. And I think there was this tremendous feeling, and the Churchill expressed it after the war, that, um, that, that, that somehow binding Western Europe together economically um, was going to be important. And of course, when NATO finally came about, I think for a lot of Europe, West European statesmen, what became the European Economic Community was sort of almost the economic arm of NATO, if I could put it away. Mm. They were thinking in terms of security. And so for Macmillan, when he became Prime Minister, when that conversation famously took place with de Gaulle, Macmillan by then absolutely realised that the, you know, without a shadow of doubt, that the, that the empire was coming to an end that uh, Britain had this new thing of the Commonwealth, but that the Britain's future militarily was in NATO, that it would have the Commonwealth, but for its trade, it really had to look to the Commonwealth and the European economic community. And so when de Gaulle said no, for de Gaulle, the question, uh, for, for, for when he said no to Macmillan, for Macmillan, the question was, well, where on earth, what is Britain's role? in the world, where is our trade going to come from um, and, 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 and how are we going to be sustainable? And I think that's why he was so upset. You know, he thought of transition to Commonwealth, mm. um, really important military and economic role in the heart of Europe. But if you knock away that pillar that's the, that's the economy, as de Gaulle did, um, I think that was very, very worrying to, to the British Prime Minister. So I can understand his intellectual and emotional reaction at that time. Tim, thank you. Time, uh, I think we should change topics. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio.
This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, where are we going now? Well, we're actually sort of going to go back to the future uh, because uh, we're now in June, uh, sort of July, and we're in July, aren't we now, in 2021. And um, 30 years ago, I was getting into my role um, uh, as head of the Prime Minister's policy unit in Slovakia. Um, and I was living in Bratislava, uh, capital of the Slovak Republic at the time, and traveling regularly to Prague. And, um, and my reflection, first of all, is I cannot believe that 30 years has gone by. But also, I cannot believe um, from that moment when I was arriving and getting into my job, just how the world has changed. Because, of course, um, it wasn't long uh, before the Soviet Union itself collapsed, and and that in fact uh, China really got into its stride in terms of really embracing the market economy, um, and of course, uh, nineteen ninety one was also still some years before the internet was created. So this this thirty year anniversary uh, has really struck me as being sort of a milestone in my life. It's really big. <laughs> Um, but the thing that really hit me, Simon, was the most incredible story that has just appeared on the BBC News website, which is about um, an extraordinary and pioneering and innovative technology company in Slovakia that has just um, successfully uh, had a proof of concept proved um, a company called Aircar, product called Aircar. Uh, which is this amazing sort of flying car uh, that has been invented in an engineering by an, an engineering company in the western Slovak city and region mm. of Nitra, and the BBC, you know, I don't uh, put it on absolutely the home sort of number one of their top news items yesterday um, on their main news website, and there is this car, this really fancy sort of sports car mm. that arrives at an airport and uh, rather like a transformer um, wings appear at the back and to the side and then this vehicle accelerates to over 170 kilometers an hour and it takes off it has wheels four wheels it has two seats it is a motor car and it flies and it flies anything up to 200 kilometers an hour and it flew um, to Bratislava Airport, where it landed. And it landed, and within two minutes, all the wings had been tucked away, and it drove off the runway as a motor car. And really, and now the futurologists and the regulators are saying that this technology is coming, and that by 2040, um, they really, really will start to be in our lives. And I thought that was amazing, because... When I arrived at Bratislava Airport, and it's where I arrived in uh, in in the early summer of 1991, you know, uh, there we were trying to take a form of Stalinist economy to some semblance of liberalism and freedom and markets and people not being terrorised by the secret police, quite frankly. Here is this extraordinary piece of technology doing amazingly futuristic things. And it's so sort of emblematic of of everything I would have dared to have hoped in my wildest dreams when I arrived. But 
My other reflection is that there are, of course, grave tensions mounting in that region in Central Europe between the European Union and fairly hard right governments, um, sort of nativist and introspective governments in Hungary and Poland. So it's not all good news and there are real tensions there. Yes. Um, the flying car, of course, would be something I've sort of been expecting to come along ever since I was a child. I think there were attempts to do them even then. What surprised me most about this one was how stylish a car it looked. I know. He was quoted as saying it's like a cross between a Cessna and a Bugatti. But it does look... I don't, don't know how fast it goes as a sports car, but it looks pretty impressive. Well, if you think of all the fanciest brands, the Ferrari, Lamborghini, Bugatti, if you think of all of them, the design mm. of this thing was all of that and more. I mean, it was just stunning yes. aesthetically. Um but uh, so it's a you know it's a, it's an amazing thing to see it fly you know it is it is as you said it's sort of it's childlike dreams you know I think when we were children there was hope of flying cars and jetpacks well we've actually had some breakthroughs clearly with jetpacks in recent years there's been some breakthrough on that and now there's there really is a flying car and it works but but thoughts on the darker side of continental yes you bring us to Hungary and Poland and there. Um, there are divided opinions. I think a lot of people don't quite know what's going on. There are questions. Is it that in the post-socialist sort of era, the post-communist era, that Hungary and Poland has suffered so much uh, emigration, there's been a hu huge brain drain in these societies, that, that people have become afraid and they've sort of become more insular? Mm. That's one hypothesis. Another hypothesis is that there are, you know, sort of geopolitical or geo-religious underpinnings. You know, these are both fairly Catholic countries and, and there are sort of various collectivist, uh, you know, uh, aspects of identity that, yeah, but does it explain it? Because there are many other, you know, Catholic countries in the region that haven't, you know, sort of elected with a huge majority parties like Orban's Fidesz or, or the Law and Justice Party in Poland. So it's about getting to grips with with why are we seeing the rise of what I can only describe as this Hungarian and Polish sort of exceptionalism, where they seem these countries seem to be led by people who are not only hostile to the more liberal and West European attitudes or that you see um, uh, sort of being promoted by the European Union and certainly mm. by Brussels. There's all that, but 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 what are the drivers of this? And crucially for, for us in Western Europe, where is it going? Could it turn darker and become more sinister, or is it just a bump in the road? Mm. Uh, and and can the European Union live with it? You know, there are lots of politicians now in these countries who are flouting not only EU norms but also the laws. And, um, and and EU, EU sort of regulations. So how the EU is going to handle this mm. is a very, very forward and challenging issue. So yes, so, so they're certainly um, opposed to a great deal of the sort of liberal ideas that we take for, for granted, but they are perfectly happy, of course, taking um, money from um, Brussels. I mean, that's proved to be incredibly lucrative. Um, and, and, and this is, I mean, you know, th th this issue is riven with contradictions. Um, you have... Um, yes, you have politicians in these countries who are flouting EU norms and, in many instances, various regulations, but they're benefiting, and the countries are benefiting from EU money, but it's where will it go? Because something has got to give. Either the money will win out and they will come into line, 
or um, in some way this will fracture the EU or undermine European values and its sort of uniformity rules in the regular sense of consequence. But but this is not sustainable. Um, something will give here. What it is, I don't know, but it's it's definitely one to watch. Um, uh, you have talked many times about when um, the countries of Eastern Europe were sort of freed from the yoke, as it were, is that one of the problems in developing into a, a you know a more a freer market, our sort of Western idea of capitalism, was the fact that they didn't have the property-owning sort of bourgeoisie, I suppose, the middle class, that has sort of underpinned um, that trend in the Western nations. But uh, from what I read, in many of those same countries, um, while the countries as a whole have become more prosperous, the actual gap between well, as in China, I suppose, between town and or city and countryside has become much, much wider. The disparity between those, um, you know, are in the city and embracing the more, the newer ways of making money are massive. When in the countryside, presumably, you know, they're still, still farming and still, one might argue, without being too um, pejorative, peasants. Yes. Well, look, the first thing that happened, it, certainly in Central and, and, and sort of Eastern Europe, was that there was, at the end of communism, there were massive divides between the urban and the rural. Mm. I mean, you could leave Prague, you could leave, uh, I'm sure, Budapest or Warsaw, and within 60 kilometers, you were almost going back to the 1890s. Mm. Because with the collectivization of farms, with nationalization, um, with the lack of right incentives, lack of market, lack of trade, lack of the right equipment, um, you were dealing with almost a sort of, and I'm being kind, a sort of Edwardian, in our terms, agricultural sector. Um, so it, it, it was for Western eyes um, who were used to, you know, advanced machinery, tractors and um, large combine harvesters. It, it was it was remarkable. Secondly, and this is not understood, I think, sufficiently in the West. And I don't think enough, enough of us academics have, 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 have fully appreciated this. But the reality is that really from the very late 70s and early 80s, most of the communist parties in the region... I'm not talking about the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. but in other places, most of the communist parties had sort of degenerated into being the forums for de facto middle-class commodified and bourgeois behavior. What do I mean? To be anyone in any of those societies, to be a professional, to be, uh, you know, whether you're a dentist or an academic or, um, or a doctor or an engineer, at any level, you had to join the party. That was the choice. Do you want, you know, do you want the baubles and 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 the salaries that go with these professions? Uh, if you do, if you want to go that route, if you're passionate about engineering and you want to join that company and you want to become a manager, you've got to join the party. Now, what this meant was that the parties over time degenerated. They became, in effect, Masonic lodges. You'll remember the Communist Party, Simon. So am I. You're my dentist. And I, um, I'm your doctor, yeah, or I'm an academic at a university, and you want your daughter to go to my university, and I need my teeth fixed. Right, here's a bottle of brandy, fix my teeth. Mm. And by the way, can you push me up the list? And if you can, I'll get your daughter to my university. Yes, yes. And so these parties degenerated. And the other thing, your point about entrepreneurship, um, it is not true that there were no entrepreneurs at the end of communism. What invariably happened was that there were grandparents, particularly older grandparents, 
who had had family businesses or they'd been involved in um, enterprises, for example, in the 1930s, let us not forget that then Czechoslovakia was the 11th most successful economy of the world. Yeah? So there were lots of people, older people, who had lived before the horrors mm. of the Nazism in the, you know, at the end of the 30s and in the 40s and then the communism. They lived before, you know, national socialism and Soviet communism. And these people remembered what enterprise was like. And often they, you know, they, they knew about accounting and what sound money and entrepreneurship and private enterprise could bring. Often those people handed it on the knowledge and the insights to grandchildren. Um, and that was the main transmission belt, sort of psychologically and sociologically. But there were an intermediate generation, people who were raised in the 40s, who really didn't know anything else. And often, because of the terrors in the 1950s and the 60s and the secret police, you know, their parents were too afraid to pass on the information. But as the system degenerated in the 80s and then collapsed, it, was, it turned out it was often grandparents who within families had gone mm, over the above their own children and transmitted the knowledge. So there was social capital there, there was human capital there, um, but um, my goodness, how many of these economies are roaring back. And it's wonderful to see uh, this Slovak company with its air car uh, doing amazing <laughs> things. Uh, Tim, let us pause for breath one more time and we'll change topics. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to Share Radio um, and The Bigger Picture, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University. Um, Tim, our final topic, I think we're going to talk about uh, GB News briefly, which sort of burst onto our airwaves with a bang, but that seems to have deflated somewhat since. Yeah, so there have been two really, I mean, there have been lots of exciting things in my life in terms of media. Um, um, you know, I mean, Netflix, Prime, all these things were amazing, but when it comes to sort of homegrown, what we used to call terrestrial telly, um, in my sort of life, I think there'd been uh, one really big and exciting thing, and that was the arrival of Channel 4 in the mid-80s, which I remember thinking was fantastic. And Channel 4 was so good uh, because you never knew where it was going to come from. You know, it was, um, it was radical, uh, it was disruptive, and it, it had a wonderfully... Sort of anarchic air to it and you know it had amazing programs whether it was ben elton you know on a saturday night uh being sort of very anti-thatcher but very very funny yes or it was after dark a wonderful program at its time where it bring together all kinds of unlikely characters um not least i remember one night where there was an extremely drunk uh oliver reed oh yes with, I believe, um, a great feminist thinker at the time and 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 just watching that explode. You know, Channel 4 was really, an, you know, Spitting Image, another great uh, series that was of its time. But for whatever reason, I think a lot of terrestrial telly in Britain, even where you've got more channels, it's sort of become le more predictable and a bit of a yawn. And we have had the arrival, haven't we, in recent weeks of GB News. And what I thought we were going to be getting with GB News um, was sort of um, a, a bit more of, a, you know, sort of 
Channel 4-esque pizzazz, a bit more unpredictability, mm. a bit more anarchic, a bit more radical, a bit more thought-provoking. I thought we were going to have interesting people for the left, interesting people from the right. And I thought it was going to be doing, bear with me, what actually Channel 4 News years and years ago was so good at. And slightly they become more predictable as well. But really, you didn't know. It was like going yes. to a boxing ring. They were going to box you and you didn't know where, you're going to, where the ideas were going to come from. Um, I do think GB News is interesting and I, you know, I like the diversity of the people on it. But first of all, I'd like it to actually have news. Uh, secondly, I'd like it to be less trying to ape, you know, American channels and being so shouty and loud and in your face. Um, I just don't think that culturally works with Britain or European yeah. Europeans more widely. And also, I'd like it to be less um, amateurish. Uh, very rarely do I seem to receive a face that is synchronised with the sound. Uh, never do I watch it for three or four minutes where there isn't some huge technological um, mm. uh, um, mess up. And also, their studios look a bit like a morgue. I mean, it looks quite depressing. Yes. And so my real plea is, let's have more news less shoutiness, um, let's be more interesting and less predictable. I do think this channel does look like a bit of a yawn right-wing Fox News thing. Mm -hmm. There are really interesting voices across the spectrum, you know, from people like Claire Fox and the old living Marxism crowd to, you know, uh, you know, a few people from the, you know various uh, you know places like you know George Galloway who mm. has sort of gone off to um, sort of George Galloway on the left or Nigel Farage on the right people who have you know George Galloway yeah it's like it's right. like a sort of visual version of of talk radio or something isn't it, it? is and, and, rather and, than a news station exactly and I think the point is um, they need to be more exciting more radical actually and more disruptive. And they need to bring in lots of really interesting people from across the spectrum. But they need to be less shouty. It should become more ideas. And please, at the top of the hour, could we have some news? Yes, I know it's very odd. Very it's odd. Very odd. Anyway, Tim, thank you very much indeed. We should probably return to that subject, assuming uh, they're still around. In a while, uh, I have been talking to Tim Evans. He's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University London and be on the bigger picture again on Chair Radio in a fortnight's time. Tim, thank you very much indeed. The Bigger Picture going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.